certainly when um, it comes to trusting God, we can certainly uh, yeah, be a little bit sort of uh, yeah, not always on the right page, hey? If you'd like to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to uh, the letter of 1 Peter, right towards the end of the uh, New Testament. reading this morning from 1st Peter chapter 4 and we're reading verses 12 through to 19 that's the end of the chapter and if you haven't got a Bible you can follow along with me on the screen behind me the Apostle Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit writes beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word, word of the Lord to us this morning. We're going to uh, pray now and ask God to uh, really apply this to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we uh, want to come before you, Lord, with an attitude of submission and surrender. I've been reading this week, Lord, that... Um, Truth on its own doesn't, uh, doesn't change lives, but only truth applied changes lives. Lord, please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, apply your truth to our hearts today. For Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. A number of years ago, I was a youth pastor in uh, Newcastle, New South Wales, and we took a, a number of uh, a group of our young people down to uh, a big uh, youth event in Sydney. And uh, we, uh, you know, it was one of those big events where they have, you know, a big concert and that sort of stuff. And at the end of the night, uh, a fellow, or someone gives, gets up and gives an evangelistic talk and encourages, uh, you know, people to come and to uh, surrender their lives, to give their lives to, uh, to Christ. Uh, a wonderful gospel message is uh, hopefully preached and young people and, and old people like will come down, but more so young people because a lot of older folk don't get onto those, those sorts of things. They'll come down and they'll, uh, you know, they'll hear the gospel message, they'll hear the message of good news that Jesus Christ has, has saved them from their sin and come flocking to the front and, uh, and, and then you know, make that commitment to Jesus and then hopefully go on and live their lives you know, in, in, in wholeheartedness for Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we pray for when we take you know, people away to these sorts of things. The essence of the talk on that night, though, was this. Come to Jesus and he'll fix up all the problems in your life. 
In other words, what the speaker was essentially saying was if you choose to follow Jesus, then your life's going to be a bed of roses. That essentially, Jesus has really, all Jesus is about is actually making your life more comfortable, more happy. Hundreds of young people flocked to the front that night at the gospel, at the altar call. They just, it was just overwhelming, just the number of people who just went down. But can I say that I really wouldn't be surprised if today the vast majority of those young people aren't walking with the Lord. The reason being is the fact that they responded to a false gospel. There was little to no mention of admission of sin and repentance. There was certainly no mention of the fact that choosing to become a follower of Jesus would mean denying oneself. And there was no mention of taking up our own cross daily and being willing to, being willing to suffer scorn and shame and even death for the sake of Jesus. I reckon that the first hint of difficulty or hardship many of these so-called followers of Jesus would have given up and simply gone back to leading their old lives. Now you might ask, well, why do I begin with something like that this morning? The reason I begin with that is because as we've been going through this letter of 1 Peter, the apostle here has, has wanting to make sure that, his, that, the, that the followers of, of Jesus in his day had, were under no false impressions whatsoever of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. He was wanting to prepare Christians living in his day to be able to stand firm in the midst of persecution and to not give in. He wanted them to understand that, you know what, when, it come, when actually you, you put your hand up to follow Jesus, more, than, more likely than not, it's actually going to mean a lot of, of hardship. And it is going to mean denying oneself. And making sacrifices, self-sacrifices. Right the way through this letter of First Peter, if you haven't picked it up, you can see that the theme right through the whole letter is, is the theme of suffering for Jesus. Have you seen that? And Peter is going to continue that t- today in this particular passage and he's going to bring this, this whole emphasis on, on, on his theology of suffering, if you like, to a, to a, to a, a great big climax And he wants his readers and us to understand this, that although living for Jesus might prove costly and there might be a a fair bit of suffering and hardship on the way, that there is in fact a level of joy and a level of blessing to be found that is beyond compare in living for Jesus Christ. A level of joy and and blessing that, that we can't find apart from going through the hard times and going through the hardship and the suffering for Jesus. In this passage, Peter reveals how we, can discover, how we can discover this joy and this blessing for ourselves. So we're going to look at this, and I've just realised I've left the clicker down, at, um, down on the, uh, the chair there, so my lovely wife would like to bring up the clicker. Thanks, darling. It's great when you've got someone else looking out for you, isn't it? 
So yes, so the title of the message today is Hard Lessons for Hard Times. And the first point that we need to, uh, to discover in this passage this morning is Peter says, we are not to be surprised as Christians when fiery trials come upon us. We see that in verse 12. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Trials and difficulties. Trials and difficulties. They come upon us suddenly at times, don't they? They come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly and they have a way of, of really throwing us, of really unsettling us in our lives. Whereas if, if, you've actually, if you're actually sort of kind of expecting it, if, you, if you've got some kind of forewarning that those sort of things are coming and sometimes we do, then it gives us an opportunity to kind of prepare ourselves, to kind of steal ourselves. And therefore, we can tend to deal with these things a little bit better. Now, that's not to say that the degree of suffering can be actually uh, minimised, you know, because of the fact that we might know it's coming. It might not necessarily mean that, uh, you know, it's going to be any easier through that process. But what it does mean is that our, our ability to cope can sometimes be increased when we have that time to mentally prepare ourselves for what's coming. And so Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Notice he says, not if it comes upon you, but when it comes upon you. See, if you're an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, then ridicule and scorn and derision from people is inevitable. We can't avoid it. In fact, you could go so far as to say if we aren't experiencing such things as these in our lives, then we've actually got to start asking ourselves the question, are we actually living out our faith in a genuine way? Because it's easy kind of just to blend in, isn't it? And just go along with the crowd. And when we blend in and go along with the crowd, then no one really sort of pays us too much attention. But when our lives are significantly different and we actually stand on values and principles that are different to the world's values and principles, then indeed we will stand out and therefore we will come under attack. The Bible tells us that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they enter into a spiritual battle. You gain an enemy. And that enemy we, hear, we read is Satan. You can see that in the next chapter, and we'll look at this next week. 1 Peter 5.8 says this. Peter writes, Be sober-minded and watchful. In other words, have a clear understanding of, of, of the world and, and what's going on, and, and, and be, beware, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. That word adversary means an enemy. An enemy who fights determinedly, continuously and relentlessly against us. An enemy who is hostile and opposed to God and to his people. And his aim is to destroy our faith. His aim is to destroy our faith and our trust in God and, and our walk with God. And he'll do it by any means possible. And he especially attacks those who are actually being serious about their faith, about following God, about obeying God and serving him. 
See, when we're obedient to Jesus, we're a threat. We are a spiritual threat to Satan and his kingdom. Did you see yourself as that? When you go out there into the week, you know, into, into the, the places that you go through the week, whether it be in the workplaces or schools, in the home, in your neighbourhoods and that sort of thing, you are in fact a weapon of righteousness for God if we seek to live those faithful lives for him. And in that situation, we become an enemy and a threat to all of what Satan's trying to do in our world. And if we're living our lives faithfully for God, then Satan's going to see that and he's going to attack because he doesn't want us to be that kind of person. But on the other hand, if we're just kind of just living lukewarm or cold, you know, faithful, you know, um, lives of faith, if we're not sort of really being obedient to God, we're kind of just blended into the world, then, you know, we're kind of probably Satan's going to leave us alone because we really don't pose that kind of threat or that risk to him and his ways. Something worth thinking about, isn't it? How much do we, through the week, really stand out for God? And how much opposition does that bring to us in our lives? That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. You know, young people, you teenagers that are here in the room today, in your school situations particularly, it's not easy to stand up for Jesus, is it? Because you don't want to kind of... I I do remember when I was a teenager. It's not that long ago. (laughs) But you don't want to stand out. Do you? You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be singled out as being different to those around about you. As we're going to see through this passage today, if we choose not to stand out for Jesus then there's a a few things that we're really going to miss out on and a few really significant and meaningful and purposeful things in our lives if we don't. Suffering for our faith is something believers should expect and be prepared for. Now, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 18 to 20, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world's going to hate you. But remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted having a different kind of lifestyle having a different having having a different kind of 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 value system and a different kind of of life it actually result will result in a different kind of lifestyle and we will stand out and the world will not like you for it one of the things we also need to understand from this verse is that these trials 
Notice that word that uh, Peter refers to, they're called fiery trials, intense trials, intense hardship, are allowed by God in order to test us. He said, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. They come upon us to test us, to prove the genuineness of our faith. Now, God's purpose for us as his followers today is this, that as his children, we will grow up to spiritual maturity in our faith, to become more and more like Jesus. And God is going to use a process to refine us and to purify us and to purge away all those impurities in us because he wants to show in us he wants to bring us to this point of something so precious and beautiful in the form of in, in the form of, of the likeness of the person of Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, years ago we went up to a place up in Rockhampton called uh, Mount Morgan. Anyone ever sort of been up to Mount Morgan? It's an old gold mine up there. And years ago when we went up there it was still in operation. I remember going into this uh, into the, uh, the the furnace room and there they were basically pouring the uh, the, the metal and the gold into this uh, into this uh, you know huge big furnace and melting it and all the impurities were all kind of rising to the top and then they were kind of just being skimmed off and then what was left at the very end was pure gold or pure silver. And we've got a picture that this, this, you know, these hardships and these difficulties and that sort of thing in our lives as, as the kind of furnace that God takes us through in order to, to burn away all of, the, all of the rubbish and all of the dross and all the impurities in our lives. And he's going to use different things in order to get rid of that, in order to sort of bring that stuff to the surface in our lives to start with and then help us to, to remove it. And then persecution is one of these things that he's going to use. James 1, 2 to 4, right, we read these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is in the process of refining us and making us more and more in the image of Jesus to become that beautiful, perfect creation that he originally made us to be. So when we experience these hardships and trials, we shouldn't see them as as negative things, but we should see them as things which, which God can use in our lives to test us and to refine us through this process. That we might be complete, lacking in nothing. So we should expect these trials, but we also should recognise that in the midst of these trials, we as believers are to rejoice, and we can rejoice. See, if suffering for Jesus is the believer's experience, then Peter reframes it in this particular passage as a reason for joy rather than a reason for bitterness and despair. Because ordinarily we wouldn't necessarily think or consider suffering to be linked with joy, would we? I mean, that's strange. But this teaching of of Peter here in this passage is nothing new in the New Testament. But Jesus himself writes this in Matthew 5.10. He says, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you see that? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, right, so, so this suffering is meant to produce joy, and it does in two ways. And the first is this, and I put it up there on the screen. It can confirm to us the genuineness of our faith. When we suffer for Christ, we can actually have a, a confirmation that we are in fact belonging to God. In verse 14, Peter writes this. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, our willingness to, to suffer rather than compromise for our faith reveals therefore in us that inner transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be ready to, uh, to, to, to suffer and to endure that kind of persecution and to undergo all that sort of hardship if, the, if God wasn't already at work in our lives and, and doing a spiritual work of transformation in our lives. We wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to consider and live in that kind of life unless the Holy Spirit was at work. And so when we undergo these hardships and difficulties, it is a means of, of confirming to us that God is at work in our lives, that we indeed belong to him. You know, so often in the midst of suffering, we kind of think that, you know, that God has abandoned us in the midst of that suffering, that, that in fact the suffering is a kind of, you know, a form of God's disfavour towards us. I mean, that was how you know, people often viewed it in, in Jesus' day. I mean, he was asked himself, you know, when they came across a, a man who was born blind, and his disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? They saw his suffering as a, as a, as a, as a sign of God's disfavour upon this particular person. And we see that today. We have that kind of, you know, ingrained in us. But Peter says here that undergoing such unjust suffering shows just exactly the opposite, that God is indeed with us and that we truly belong to him. We see it down in verse 17. It says, For it is time for the judgment to begin to the, at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will, it, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a bit of a kind of confusing kind of thing there that Peter puts in here, but essentially what he's saying is this. He's basically saying that, uh, that God's judgment... You know, is, and he's speaking of God's uh, eternal judgment, but it actually has an effect here in the here and now. That it actually begins here in, in, in the here and now. And that judgment is being seen through people who are following him and people who are not following him. And he says, those that are undergoing that unjust, that unjust suffering in their life for God, it is basically confirming in them the reality that they belong to God. And in a sense, it is God kind of just you know, sorting out the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. He's actually revealing even today those who belong to him and those who don't. And that in itself is a kind of revealing of God's judgment upon mankind. Now, it's certainly not a pleasant or easy experience. But we need to remember that, that Jesus himself suffered and that his suffering certainly wasn't an easy experience. But what did his suffering result in? Jesus' suffering resulted in glory, and so will ours. We see that in verse 13. I know I'm sort of jumping a bit around a bit here in the passage today, but that's just the way that the sort of passage is set up. 
Peter says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because when Jesus' ultimate glory is revealed at the end of time, at that final judgment, we ourselves as his people will receive our vindication and reward. Having endured the hardship of this life, having gone through the suffering and persecution for our faith as followers of Jesus, we will indeed be vindicated before all of creation and our reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven with God. Verse 18 points to the difficulties that we'll face whilst we are, well, certainly whilst we are uh, you know, living in this world. It says if the righteous is scarcely saved or if, if it's a, a difficult thing for the righteous to be saved. And what the, Peter's sort of explaining there is that the fact that uh, you know, through this life, this suffering, it's going to be hard to, to, to stay true to God in the midst of, of the persecution and suffering that we face in this world. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. In fact, John MacArthur uh, says that, uh, you know, Paul says something similar in Acts chapter 14, verse 19 to 22, where the Apostle Paul writes this, when he himself is experiencing persecution, he says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that it will be through many tribulations or trials or hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul is saying it's going to be a, it can be a hard road. That is the road that God, has, that God set for Jesus and it's the road that he sets for us but it's a road that ultimately leads to glory. And we need to keep the big, the big picture in mind. And Peter's saying that although it is far better, Peter's saying that it is far better, therefore, than to undergo a little suffering now as believers rather than to face an eternity of suffering for not following Jesus. Second reason that we rejoice in our suffering, apart from the fact that it confirms the reality of our faith, is that it, suffering brings a special ministry of the Holy Spirit to our lives. Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, in times of trial, in times of hardship, there is available to us a deeper, a closer, a more intimate relationship to God that we may or may not that we may not experience, or that we indeed cannot experience at other times. A little while ago, we did a series in Daniel. You might recall the uh, the uh, time where uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up for God, you know, everyone had to bow down before the statue and they, st and they didn't, they would not bow before the statue and so there was a furnace that was made and then they were taken to this furnace and they were, the, you know, the, serv the, the furnace was heated up seven times hotter than normal and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, they were persecuted for their faith and what do we read that took place 
at that particular time as they were those three people those three guys were thrown into the fiery furnace someone said hey look there's actually a fourth person walking around in the furnace with them there was a real closeness and an intimacy because god was there with them right there in the midst of that furnace and they would never have experienced that kind of closeness and intimacy had they not had to endure that suffering you know, back in Acts chapter 7, we read of Stephen, a young man who was uh, full, of, full of faith and full of, and full of God's goodness. He was just a person who was just so full on living his life wholeheartedly for Jesus. And he was dragged before a crowd and he was stoned for his faith. And as he's being stoned, as these, things, as these great big hunks of rock are, are hitting his body, what is shown to him but he he's all of a sudden heaven is opened up and he says behold i see jesus seated at the right hand of god there in the midst of the most horrendous suffering he saw jesus i was reading this week a little devotion from desiring god and uh, his fellow writes he says you know, if we look to God when we're thrown into the wilderness of suffering, God will lead us to secret sanctuaries of peace, strength, hope, and even joy. King David was driven from his home by betrayal and mutiny, running for his life in the desert, and yet he could write these words, My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. Here is a man who was in fear of his very life. We're not sure if at this particular time he, he penned this psalm when he was running from Saul or later on from his son Absalom. But here he is in the midst of the wilderness and his life has just turned, been turned upside down and, and people are looking to kill him and he says, my soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. In other words, God, you are the best of the best. See, David's song teaches us that true joy in God can be heard in the wilderness from lips that have considered God's steadfast love. And when we are going through these difficult times in our lives, this is the key, the key to experiencing the joy and the restedness and the contentment in the midst of that, and that is to remember the steadfast love of our God towards us. You notice that Peter begins this particular section with the word beloved. Now, these people were, off, were obviously dear to Peter. He indeed was their pastor. He was their shepherd. He was the one who, who had incredible concern for their welfare and their, and, and their lives. But, but that word, beloved, is not just reflecting his love for, these, for the people, but God's love for the Christians. A love, that, that word there speaks of a love that is truly centred specifically on someone in a special relationship with you. And particularly the relationship of a, of, a, of a parent and a child. 
And God says that in the midst of the difficulties of the hardships, when you endure persecution for my name, I am there in the midst of it with you and I love you. And I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. And all that is going through, I will bring good out of it in your life. And I will glorify myself in you and through you in the midst of that. Folks, in the midst, we cannot experience this kind of intimacy and, and closeness to God unless we, experience, unless we go through, we're prepared to go through that suffering and that hardship in our lives for him. Now, the Apostle Peter then sort of just kind of brings a bit of a clarification in there and he says, as believers, though, we need to assess realistically what it is that's actually causing our hardship. Because he says, you know, it's a righteous thing to suffer for Christ and there's a, there's a blessing and a joy that comes in that. But you know what? It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a, or as a meddler. He's saying, what, what Peter's essentially saying is that as followers of Jesus, we are to live in such a way that the only crime that we can be convicted of, so to speak, in people's judgment, is the crime of being a Christian, is the crime in the world's eyes of being a follower of Jesus. Christians can certainly be viewed by those around us as being offensive, but let us be offensive simply because of our obedience to Jesus and not because of some sinful attitude or behaviour in our lives. I've heard on a number of occasions people who, uh, you know, Christians who have, you know, sort of, complained about the their, in their eyes the unjust suffering that they've received because they're a follower of Jesus but the reality of it is that they have brought it upon themselves because they have been critical judgmental horrible people and Peter says don't be like that the only accusation that should be leveled towards us and to be that can be the world can find offensive is the fact that we indeed follow Jesus the last thing I just want to uh, bring to our attention is that is this that Peter comes out from, brings out from this passage is that our suffering presents us with an opportunity to glorify God you see that in verse 16 yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name you know, to glorify God means to actually to exalt God, to, to lift up God's name, to, to, to really make God's name great. And we're to live, we're to live our lives in such a way that actually does that, that actually lifts up God's name and presents God as indeed being great. And to glorify God means to exalt him and count him alone worthy to suffer for on account of his name. And one of the key ways to glorifying God is this. It is to, in the midst of our suffering, entrust ourselves into his care. In other words, to put ourselves into his hands, knowing that his ways are perfect and good. 1 Peter 2, 23 
says this, speaking of Jesus, when he endured his suffering, says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, God the Father. And that's how we're meant to live our lives, entrusting our lives every minute of every day into the hands of God. One of the things that God's really been challenging me about just lately is this whole aspect of surrender. We want more of God in our lives. In many of our, in many of our hearts sitting in this room today, we want more of God in our lives. We want to experience that, that closeness and that deep intimacy with God so much. But the, the fact is, is that we're not prepared to surrender to God and experience that. We will not let go of the reins of our lives and allow God to take over. We say we want more of God but the choices and the decisions that we make in our lives actually can show exact opposite. We need to entrust ourselves into his care. And as we do that, and as we seek to live those faithful, humble, obedient, submissive lives to Christ, as we live out Christ commands to love and to show grace and to do good and to, and to walk in paths of righteousness. It's, it's there. It's at that, that point. Even though we'll endure suffering and persecution and difficulty for it, it's at that point that God will meet us with his very presence. It's a good thing to endure persecution for the name of Jesus. Can you truly say that today in your own hearts? Can you say it is a good thing to suffer for the name of Christ? Because that's what Peter's saying here through this whole passage. He wants Christians to understand that it is indeed a good thing. Not that the suffering is good, but what it produces in us is good. It's a good thing to endure persecution for the name of Jesus. It reminds us that God is at work in us, refining us in our faith. It's a way in which God indeed speaks of his love towards us because Hebrews 12 tells us that a father disciplines a child he loves. It brings to us an assurance of our salvation and a special comforting ministry of God through his Holy Spirit. So the next time, the next time you are tempted or you are tempted to avoid suffering for Jesus, be reminded of these things. Be willing to share in Christ's sufferings that you may also share in his glory and in his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for this really challenging word to us today, Lord. Our natural tendency is to run from suffering. 
Our natural tendency is to resist trial and hardship. And it's not easy today taking a stand for our faith, particularly in a culture and society which is becoming more and more opposed and hostile to the things of God and to his people. I pray today that we ourselves actually might take courage and inspiration from those Christians, those fellow believers around the world who even today are, they're not just suffering ridicule and scorn and shame, they are indeed losing their lives for Jesus. They are willing to lay down everything for Christ because in their minds and in their hearts, Jesus is better. So we we ask, Holy Spirit, that you might indeed impress upon our hearts that Jesus is so much better than anything in this world, even if it means enduring hardship for his name. Help us to walk in that truth this week. Amen.